Well, today we are going to be continuing our study um, as it pertains to God's moral law and the Ten Commandments. But now we are going to look at the second table of the law. Now, before we get started, you know, it's important to remember what both myself and Jason have indicated in regards to the Ten Commandments as expressed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. I do not want for you to, to forget this. You know, what we see in those passages is not the full expression of God's moral law, but rather a summary. But rather a summary. And I think Jason, in fact, used this example. Think of each commandment as a chapter title in a book. For example, if you were to look at a book and you were to see all the different chapters within the book itself, each chapter title, chapter one, commandment one, chapter two, commandment two, um, or, you know, thou shalt have, um, um, thou shalt not make it to the any graven image. Each of those commandments effectively is, um, is just as that, that chapter title. If you want to know the, the totality of God's, of those 10 commandments, of what each commandment means, you're going to have to look throughout the entirety of scripture in order to get the full exhaustion of those commandments. Now, Jason spent the last few lessons going over the first table of the law, which dealt with our duties towards God. Now, I'm going to be dealing with the second table of the law, which deals with our duties towards our fellow man. That being said, it is important that those first four commandments are given first because how we honor God is of ultimate importance. Nothing takes precedence over God. Now, in our humanistic society, there is an understanding, albeit a twisted understanding, that we are to treat our fellow man in a certain way. We shouldn't kill them or lie to them. We shouldn't steal from them, unless obviously you work for the federal government. Then it's just called taxes. The people that our society deems great are those who appear to be doing a good job upholding commandments 5 through 10, the second table of the law. Even if a person believed in a different God, you'll find many people justifying their spot in heaven if they were a good person. I think a perfect example of this is Mahatma Gandhi. You know, there's even some Christians who would consider Gandhi, because of the humanitarian work and everything that he did, to be someone to where, yeah, he didn't believe in God, our God, but man, look at all the good that he did. Now, the only reason we would ever utter such nonsense is because we have completely, completely ignored the first table of the law. We act as though the entirety of God's law consists of the second table. And you know what? We as Christians, we just get extra credit because we also uphold the first table of the law. That's not the case at all. In reality, only a person who properly upholds the first table of the law can even begin to understand how to uphold the second table. So now, as I mentioned earlier, the second table of the law, well, that deals with our duty towards our fellow man. While the first table of the law was placed first for a reason, the second table of the law is something that is vitally, vitally important. How we deal with others matter. We don't properly execute our role as a Christian if we merely focus on commandments one through four and ignore these commandments. 
Just like you have some Christians who feel as though so long as you treat others right, yeah, it doesn't really matter how you treat God. You also have those Christians who think that so long as you're following the first table of the law, you know what, God will let you slide with, you know, how you treat your fellow man. And that's not the case at all. In reality, your devotion to God will show itself in how you treat others. And an example of this can be found in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Now, in this um, example, Jesus is um, talking in regards to other believers, but still the fact remains in regards to that responsibility towards our fellow man. Listen, Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So Jesus indicates how you treat your fellow brothers. And this example is as you would have done it to me. Now, moving on. So as I mentioned, commandments one through four, that vertical relationship, well, that dealt with how we are to act in regards to our ultimate authority, God. Now, the fifth commandment moves from that heavenly authority structure to earthly authority structures. As such, This commandment actually serves as a great bridge from the first table into the second table where we are now dealing with man-to-man relationship, but by first establishing earthly authority. With that being said, let's take a look at what the fifth commandment actually says. And it could be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, While the fifth commandment does deal with the obvious idea of children submitting to and obeying their parents, that is not the only thing taught by this commandment. Remember what I indicated earlier. Each commandment is merely just a summary in Exodus 20, a summary of the fullness of God's moral law. The general principle of this commandment is honoring those in authority over us. Listen to what our larger catechism says in question 124. By father and mother, in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Now, when we look at the scriptures, we do see several examples where the word father is not used to express someone's biological father, but rather someone who is in authority. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 45, verse 8. Now, therefore, now this is Joseph talking. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So you see how Joseph um, um, refers to himself, or what he says God 
has placed him as a father to Pharaoh, not biologically, obviously. Then you have 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 2. Paul writing, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So you see how Paul uses the example of mothers and fathers to talk about how we regard or talk to, or in this case, rebuke, though our elders. Elders from the standpoint of, you know, um, not elders within the church, but obviously those older people, older men, older women. Then you have 2 Kings 5, verse 13. Then Naaman's servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now, these are Naaman's servants. But note how, he, how they refer to him as father. And then just a couple more. 2 Kings 2, um, verse 12. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So we see Elisha referring to Elijah, who is not his biological father, as my father, my father. So being that the term father is sometimes used in scriptures for those in authority, we must understand then that the scope of this commandment extends beyond the natural family. Since the first place where people learn the principle of authority is, with, is within the home, with their natural family, the commandment is summarized in the way that it is. But through what we learn within the family, we understand the principle of authority and the responsibility we have now to honor those over us. So Calvin actually makes a very good point that I, I want to read and I'll explain afterwards. In this commandment, then, as in others, God, by synecdoche, embraces under a specific rule a general principle. The lawful commands should obtain due reverence from us. But out all things should not be distinctly expressed, first of all, brevity itself readily accounts for. And besides, another reason is to be noticed, and listen to what he says here, that God designedly used a homely style in addressing a rude people because he saw its expediency. If he had said generally that all superiors were to be obeyed, since pride is natural to all, it would not have been easy to incline the greater part of man to pay submission to a few. Nay, since subjection is naturally disagreeable, many would have kicked against it. God, therefore, propounds a specific kind of subjection, which it would have been gross barbarism to refuse, that thus their ferocity being gradually subdued, he might accustom men to bear the yoke. Hence, the exhortations are derived that people should honor the king, that every soul should be subject unto the higher powers, that servants should obey their masters, even the forward and morose. So you know what Calvin is saying here? The reason why it's summarized in the way that it is, as I mentioned earlier, is that it is within that initial family unit, the mother, the father, and the child, that the understanding of authority first plays itself out. And in explaining it or giving it in that way, that is given in a way for people to understand and to learn what authority and submission and obedience means and to carry that out now 
into every other governmental and authoritative sphere. So, with that being said, being as we've laid out the groundwork that by father and mother, we're not just talking about biological fathers and biological mothers, but those in authority, let's now look at what is meant by the word honor. And when we look at this word honor, we can understand honor and what is meant, the duties required within that word honor in three ways. The first is reverence. Now, by reverence, I mean respect and esteem. A person that is to honor their mother, their father, those in authority, ought to have reverence for them. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3, Moses writes, Every one of you shall, have, uh, shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, verse 32, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And then the last example I'll use is Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Now, this particular passage may not be as clear at first, so it may be worth me just explaining this a little bit. God, through the prophet Malachi, is talking to those sinful priests who were treating with contempt the sacrifices that they were supposed to be bringing before God. Now, in order for them to draw an understanding of the type of honor and respect that they were to have to God, which they weren't giving to him, he talks about the honor people naturally give to their fathers and the respect people naturally give to their masters. So what's implied in the analogy that God uses is that people are to give honor to their fathers and respect to their masters. If that wasn't the case, then the analogy just wouldn't make sense. So we see here in this passage and in the other passages that reverence is certainly a necessary um, duty as it pertains to honor. The second way we honor those in authority is by obedience. And by obedience, I mean compliance with a non-sinful command and proper submission. Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise. So you see what Paul says here. Obey your parents in the Lord. He goes on to say in regards to Slaves, servants, Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Again, the understanding now of obedience itself. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Now, looking at the ecclesiastical realm, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be grief, excuse me, for this would be unprofitable to you. So we see another example of the understanding of obeying and submitting to church leaders. And then we have 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institute, institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And then let's look at Romans 13, 1 through 2, which connects with this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those who exist 
are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they have opposed and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So we see in those two passages that I just read, the understanding that we are to be in subjection even to the civil magistrate. And then you have Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So then we see here in the scriptures the understanding of wives being submissive, submitting to their husbands. Now, with all of these passages, you know, in our modern, individualistic, I do what I want culture, any type of required obedience is immediately considered oppressive. Rules of any kind is immediately called tyrannical. If any superior of any kind requires us to do anything we don't want to do, oh, they're abusing their power. Wow, we have to admit there are those in authority who do abuse their role and do truly become oppressive. And I'm going to touch on this. We ought not ignore the rule because of the sinful outliers. This is what happens far too often. The only time God gives us the green light to disobey those in authority is when their command would force us to disobey God. And we have an example of this actually in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29 with Peter and the apostles. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So Jesus gave them the command, the commission to go and preach the gospel. The rulers here, the high priest told them, no, don't preach the gospel. Now, they had one of two choices. They can either obey the high priest and then subsequently disobey God, or they can obey God and disobey the high priest. When you're put in that position, you do as the apostles did. You obey God and you disobey the high priest which has told you to do something that is sinful. Now, with all that said, unless a command forces us to disobey God, our duty in honoring those who are over us includes obedience. And the third point that's entailed in the understanding of honoring those in authority over us is caring for them. Now, this part varies depending on the sphere. For example, within the natural familial or family realm, this means caring for your parents when they are older. Proverbs 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. I love this quote from Thomas Watson, old English Puritan. He says, parents, um, parents brought up children when they were young and children ought to nourish their parents when they are old. Within the civil magistrate, care or caring means paying those lawful taxes that ensure that our leaders can serve. Romans 13, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, don't get me wrong. How we're being taxed right now is extremely unbiblical and unbiblically high in this country. 
And we are taxed for way too many unnecessary things that goes beyond the scope of Scripture. I am not saying anytime someone wants to propose a tax as in Congress that therefore it's okay. But again, as I mentioned earlier, the abuse does not negate the rule. Now, within the ecclesiastical realm, how that care happens is by paying those tithes, which allows the ministers to preach and shepherd freely. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So again, with honor, that includes reverence, obedience, and care. So now let's continue on and, and um, continue to look at you know, this understanding of um, what the divines call superiors, inferiors, and equals as it pertains to the fifth commandment. Because you know, at first glance, when you look at the fifth commandment, it may appear as though this commandment only deals with those duties that those under authority have towards those in authority. And that's not the case at all. What is also implied in this commandment is the, the, the duty that those in authority have towards those under authority, as well as the mutual duties that people have towards one another. Or to put it in, in another way, this commandment in the, um, entails duties that inferiors have towards superiors, superiors have towards inferiors, and equals have towards one another. And since I spent a lot of time earlier in this lesson focusing on the duties of those under authority towards those in authority, I want to now take time to focus in on the responsibilities of those in authority. Since the authority that people possess is not innate in them, but delegated to them by God, God sets the parameters for what can and can't be done in, for, by those in authority. The ultimate duty of any superior Anybody in authority is to submit themselves to God first and foremost. And they must faithfully execute those duties which God gives to them and only those responsibilities. He is not to be slack in his responsibilities, no rule beyond the sphere given to him. A superior who steps beyond the boundaries that God places is acting disobediently. He has gone from a leader to a tyrant. Now that being said, and this is important to understand. When a superior is going overboard, that does not give the inferior automatic authority to revolt. While the superior may be a bad superior, that does not mean that God's ordained authority structure is bad. And to draw that point out, just go, go back in your Bible history um, to the time of Exodus when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed. And treated harshly, Pharaoh was a cruel ruler to them, a cruel superior. Yet, in all of that, God never calls for Israel to revolt. Rather, he sends Moses to request that Israel be freed. Israel only leaves after Pharaoh grants them their leave. See, this is why things are so popular nowadays, but this is why things like revolutions are unbiblical. Any fight or war where those under authority are seeking to overthrow those in authority subverts God's ordained structure. And I do want to make a caveat because the immediate thing that some people will think is, well, what about the American Revolution? And that's a, just a terrible way to call that war because it was not a revolution, it was war for independence as we understand it. 
And it was the lesser magistrate um, going up against the greater magistrate. So it was not a toppling of authority or structure. Now, with all that being said, please note what I'm saying. I am talking about those who want to overthrow the structure. That is what is unbiblical. Now, I am not saying that there may not be a time where a person may have to flee and escape. For example, if a wife is in a home with an abusive, physically abusive husband, her life is obviously in danger. She needs to flee. She has a duty per the sixth commandment to preserve her life. Now, with all that being said, you know, one of the things that makes this commandment so unique is that we see that God attaches a promise to this commandment. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, when Moses restates the, ten, um, the fifth commandment, he says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. And then we see Paul repeating it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, he adds, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. God, with this commandment and the upholding of it, promises long life and prosperity to those who are faithfully keeping this commandment. Because this commandment deals with authority structure, we need to consider how everybody fulfilling their duties within this commandment provides stability. In a home, a husband who is leading biblically, a wife who is faithfully fulfilling her role as a helpmeet, and a child who is obedient to their parents is a home where there is no drama or chaos. In a job, a boss who is managing biblically and employees who are faithfully working is a work environment that won't see much turnover or problems. In a church, elders who are shepherding biblically and a congregation who submits to those elders is a church with harmony. In a nation, a king or president who is ruling biblically and citizens who are subjecting themselves to that king is a nation that will rarely have any turmoil or strife. Yet, when no one does what they're supposed to do, none of those structures will hold firm for long. See, what makes this commandment so necessary is that it provides the stability that any society, any social structure needs to truly thrive. If you ignore this commandment, the family will be unstable. Work will be unstable. The church will be unstable. The nation will be unstable. See, nothing can flourish and thrive when there is too much instability whether it's insubordination on the part of the inferiors or tyrannical rule by the part of the superiors. If you keep this commandment, however, family life will be great. Work life will be great. Church life will be great. Society will be great. As a result, there will be flourishing. There will be long life. There will be peace. And there will be God's abundant blessing. So this concludes our lesson today as it pertains to the fifth commandment. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to continue by examining the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill.